Welcome to Love Your Heart, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic's Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute. These podcasts will help you learn more about your heart, thoracic, and vascular systems, ways to stay healthy, and information about diseases and treatment options. Enjoy. Okay, so our first question is, is there any talk about education for parents in recognizing signs, symptoms of sudden cardiac arrest, death in early years, like adolescent years of sports participation? So, you know, I think that's a good question for the, for the PPE in general. And the PPE is about engaging the athlete and the family and education, not just checking boxes along the way. In terms of education, I think it's not just only important to educate the family about sudden cardiac arrest symptoms, but it's important to educate coaches, which has been a missing piece. And in fact, that's been such a missing piece that a lot of states have introduced legislation and passed legislation that coaches have to have some degree of training and education mandated about risk factors and signs and symptoms of sudden cardiac arrest and sudden cardiac death. What do you think about that, Rick, as the primary care physician? So, you know, I, I agree that educational is, is, is vital to this. And you know, the more that people are, are aware of the signs and symptoms, and, and this goes along with the, the education that we put out there with concussions and heat-related illnesses. And, and the problem is a lot of times we assume that too many people know what we think that they should know. And we don't take the opportunity to educate them because we think that it should just fall into place with everything else that they've learned. Um, the uh, I just found this out, the Ohio High School mandates that each high school student has training in CPR and basic um, life support. Um, very important, but obviously, you know, so that they can institute CPR in those settings and those situations. But if it's done, it's one and done, you may not necessarily get all that information. Strength and conditioning coaches, you know, maybe fresh out of school, we may anticipate that they know what to do uh, with those conditioning workouts and, and helping uh, recognize whether it's heat-related illness or, or cardiovascular collapse. But, uh, but it really comes down to not just education, but holding them to make sure that they know um, and, and are tested on that to make sure what they know what the next steps are and involving them in the emergency action plan. So it, it takes a team effort, and survivability will definitely go up the more the athletic trainers, and you pointed that out, that the you know with the athletic trainers being on site and having those emergency action plans, we're seeing increased survivability. Rick, you brought up a great point with respect to CPR and AED training in our athletes. So what is the role or are you aware of any particular mandate with our college students, our college athletes having to do CPR training? I, I you know, I, I don't know any mandates. Uh, I know that it's recommended and I know that it's offered. I, I do know that um, uh, a lot of uh, there, there are courses offered, but there are specific courses uh, through health and education. And I know that our athletic trainers at some of the universities are, are, are foremost in teaching those. Um, and again, the more the more the people know, the the better off, and, and the more lives we're going to save. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's an important concept when we talk about shared decision making. Um, you know, when I counsel athletes that have real cardiovascular disease and they have elected to return to play, and the school has participated in that discussion to allow them to return to play, a lot of what we also then talk about is not just the school's emergency action plan, but it's that individual athlete's emergency action plan. We often recommend um, that the athlete gets their own AED and the AED becomes part of their kit. They have their glove, their bat, their AED that travels with them so they don't have to rely on someone else having an AED. But then I also push that the team, their team and their teammates get certified in basic CPR and use of an AED because um, they're the ones who's going to spend the most time with them and may 
have to rescue them if that's the case. I think in general, what we see is what uh, Dr. Figler noted is that, you know, the, the emergency action plans that are in place are probably more likely going to be used on a bystander than, a, than an athlete. Um, but that's fine. That's, you know, the, the benefit of an emergency action plan. Um, there's zero controversy in emergency action plans and how well they work, despite the controversy in ECG screenings. Great. Tom, I have a question for you. So the causes of sudden cardiac death, and I think oftentimes people think hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is that number one cause, um, but we're starting to see that, you know, it's more structurally normal hearts and electrical abnormalities that are probably precipitating arrest and death. Is that something that you're seeing? And as an electrophysiologist, what is your approach when you do see um, any sort of athlete perhaps coming in with a long QT or maybe even more commonly like a pre-excitation pathway? So very good questions. You know, in, in terms of the, the frequency of these different abnormalities, you know, it's hard as, a, as the individual practitioner to really find the patterns because they, the event rates are so rare. Um, so, you know, my, uh, as an electrophysiologist, I'm sort of very tuned in to the channelopathies and those uh, sort of primary arrhythmia events. But, but it, it's difficult, I think, to pare down exactly what where the frequencies lie, just as an individual practitioner. In terms of uh, pre-excitation, we actually see a fair bit of that, and fortunately are able to get a lot of people back into you know, sport and play. We are able to get these people back to play. Um, sometimes it's with an ablation, sometimes just doing uh, some simple studies to define that pathway, the conduction uh, characteristics, and sort of document that it's, it's not a, a dangerous pathway. Yeah, and you highlight, highlight a great point. I think oftentimes when we think about you know, certain rhythm issues, not necessarily related to cardiac arrest and death, you know, we're very used to using medical management or medications as our number one um, therapy strategy. But oftentimes with our athletes, you know, particularly if it's a pre-excitation um, or an atrial flutter, atrial tachyarrhythmia, we, we oftentimes will go straight to ablation to get these people back back to what they love doing. So our electrophysiologists like you are critical whenever we have those abnormal heart rhythms that we've got to deal with. This is more of a question, I think, for all of you, because we have multiple disciplines up here. And, you know, whenever whenever I quote our AHA-ACC guidelines, you know, they're from 2015, and I think there's been a shift in the athlete mentality, the cardiologist, the sports medicine, our specialist mentality. What kinds of things would you want to see now be incorporated into those guidelines, which as Mike had referred, you know, typically kind of talk about the bread and butter, the cardiomyopathy is a little congenital, a little electrical. What are we missing? I'll start that one, I guess. You're right. They're seven years old now. So there is an underlying shift that those will be updated in the next few years. You know, I, I think that the shift is away from the paternalistic even more. Um, the 2015 guidelines put in the 2A, 2B, but there's no real strong emphasis on shared decision-making. There's some bits and pieces in there. I think you're going to see some pretty big change in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy uh, section. There's more and more about participation in larger growing registries, about participating with well-treated channelopathies, and I, I emphasize that well-treated channelopathies very strongly. So I think that's what we're going to see is a, a big shift into the shared decision-making and how to do shared decision-making. I wouldn't be surprised if there's an entire new task force just dedicated to shared decision-making because it's, it's a complicated process to do well. You talked already about how you know, high-intensity sports may place uh, individuals with certain types of, of um, cardiac anomalies or, or cardiac conditions at, at increased risk. And so I, I think perhaps there can, there can be more done 
in terms of risk stratifying based on the intensity of the, the activity Yeah, I think when it when it comes down to it, we're ultimately responsible for uh, the clearance of these athletes to get back out and, and making it as safe as possible for them to to do the sport that they love. And we deal with a lot of different athletes. You know, the I mentioned the mental health ramifications of disqualifying an athlete and you know, de-identifying that athlete as who they are and who they think they were going to be, uh, especially when it comes at the mention of you know. I'm going to be a collegiate athlete. I'm going to be a collegiate athlete, and we tell them no. I think one of the the bigger risks is 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 having these shared discussions about how, how do we know definitively that they're not going to have a problem, and we we don't know that, right? So it really opens up the this has opened up the lines of communication. But I think there's going to be more discussions about that in the future about. And I'm loosening those those strings because we know that we have survivability in those athletes. That if we're there and they have that episode, then we can help them. Unfortunately, um, if they're alone in their bed at night, we may not be able to. All excellent points. I think as a female provider, the things I always think about are inclusion of pregnancy, our pregnant athletes. How do we manage them? Then another, I think then you know, we talked a little bit about our para-athletes. I mean, what about our athletes with congenital abnormalities? I think right now we have a lot of restriction, which is based upon just either the lack of data, lack of experience, and understanding of, you know, what can exercise do for individuals who have more complex congenital heart disease. So I'm really excited to see those things perhaps be included or touched upon. And then even just starting to kind of get a little bit with the times in terms of incorporating perhaps our, you know, our technology, seeing is that something that we can use for diagnostic purposes, perhaps therapeutic purposes, whatnot. So I think there's a lot of different directions that we can go. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash loveyourheartpodcast. podcast.